know what the worst part about being in the infantry is? It's a tankless job. This is the Veteran Wargamer. This is the Veteran Wargamer. I am your host, Jay Arnold. In this episode, episode 37, I speak with Nick Skinner and Richard Clark of Two Fat Lardies about all things lard and their upcoming rules, What a Tanker. Just to give you a little peek behind the curtain real quick, uh, I had originally intended for this episode to come out uh, a week later than it actually is, uh, releasing on April 4th, 2018. So I make reference to the pre-order, which is no longer available uh, in in the interview with uh, Nick and Richard. That is not correct. As I release this episode the pre-order is still available 24 pounds gets you the pdf of the rules hard copy uh the universal tanker tool and the markers uh, for various statuses for up to six tanks so still a good value Uh, we're not sure exactly what the final price is going to be until after they release i guess i think they said something like 28 pounds in the interview so let's get to it And I'm pleased to welcome to the show from Two Fat Lardies, Nick Skinner and Richard Clark. Gentlemen, hello, how are you today? Hi, very well, thanks. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, or wherever it may be. (laughs) Yeah, whatever time it is when you are listening. It's very early in the morning for me, and you guys are right in the middle of your midday. But that's how we are. We've just with... had uh, we've just had our clocks go forward by an hour. In fact, at the time of recording, we've just switched over to British summer time. Uh, so we're looking forward to some blue skies. <laughs> Good. Yeah, that's an optimistic <laughs> view of what British summer time actually means. I think. But there we are. <laughs> Is that not why they set it up? I thought that was why they did it. <laughs> no. <laughs> it it always seems whenever it always seems that whenever. Uh, daylight saving time for us gets mm. gets put into place that uh, that I have drill with my National Guard unit that weekend oh, right. so <laughs> so Sunday is always a, an unfortunate surprise but yeah yeah that's that. that's how it goes mm. well to start off I'm gonna ask you the same question that I ask all of my guests and that is what makes you a veteran wargamer okay well and Nick why don't you kick off as you're alphabetically first well, alphabetically, uh, so the veteran part, I guess, I must have been wargaming now for 40 years, probably. I'm 50 next month, which is quite a startling thought, but um, my earliest memories go back to uh, wargaming on the dining room table with my with my elder brother, with various airfix soldiers, and uh, it's kind of thing that once you start at that age, you know, you just get drawn into it and you never look back. I've always been a historical gamer, never really got into Dungeons and Dragons. I was always into originally First and Second World War and then Napoleonics thereafter. So, uh, yeah, I've been doing this stuff for 40 years and I still love it. Yeah, okay, well, um, uh, I'm even more veteran because I'm even older. Uh, I'm 54, um, going on 16, I think, sometimes, but... 
Um, yeah, I've, I've been gaming since, uh, well, I never, I've always war games, you know, from the point of view of when I was a kid rolling marbles at Toy Soldiers and then when I went to big school when I was 11, on day two when they showed us around the library, I um, found a book by Don Featherstone on um, war games campaigns and was just, wow, I can't believe that I don't have to throw rocks at stuff. I can actually roll <laughs> dice at them instead, which means they, they have a, a bit of a longer shelf life. Um, so I kind of started off there. Um, I started um, writing um, in the hobby press uh, back in the towards the end of the uh, 1980s. So I used to write a lot for War Games Illustrated. And then both Nick and I have been designing rules together as a team and publishing them since 2002. So we, we're just old gits, really. Well, we are, yeah. and um, we've. I think I first met you when you mm. must have been about 18. I was probably about 15. Mm. Um, cue the romantic music. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I went to the I went to the St Albans War Game Club, and you were putting on a game there which was a 25mm medieval skirmish using uh, what was at the time sort of, you know, the state-of-the-art figures from Essex Miniatures. Mm. Um, and it was a multiplayer game with about 12 guys uh, and it absolutely blew my socks off. Uh, I think you were running that game, weren't you? You were certainly, you were certainly uh, provided some of the figures I know. Was this the one where you shot the arrow at the bloke trying to light the beacon to let people yeah. know? Uh, yeah, and that, yeah, we, that, I built some boats, some medieval cogs and coracles or something like that out of um, out of marine ply, which is quite suitable for boats, um, because the choice of materials in those days that we could use wasn't quite so friendly. But I, I remember going down and buying this great big eight foot by six foot sheet of marine ply from a wood wood supplier in the next town, and then realising I couldn't fit it in the car to get it home. <laughs> <laughs> And I uh, then had to try and find a mate with a van to come and get it. But yeah, that, I do remember that game actually in Essex Miniatures. The reason for doing Medieval was Essex Miniatures had just come out with their knights in the late 70s. And they, they were, at the time, you know, everybody goes, wow, about the Perrys now. At the time, Essex had everybody going, wow, and fawning over these figures just as much. Because mm. to us at the time, they just appeared spectacular when you compared them to things like... Um, Hinchliffe, which have their appeal, but they're quite um, grotesque in some respects. In that, you know, mm -hmm. the poses don't feel natural, um, and I know a lot of that is in how you paint them. But I just couldn't paint them to get them right. So having these Essex figures, which were really anatomically, you know, at the time, mm. stunningly realistic, just allowed me to, um, to to paint them up. And I mean, we didn't do things like highlighting in those days. But it was uh, they were they were lovely figures. Uh, the the boats were a bit of an absurdity, but there we are. That's life. <laughs> but that club at St Albans, though, that was um, for me that was an eye-opening experience. There were lots of innovative thinkers there. Rich, mm. you remember Will McNally, who oh, was yeah. there at that time, mm. who used to um, write his own rules. He had his own rules that he'd written for American War of Independence, um, which used a very interesting uh, I go to go <coughs> sort of alternate move system. And he had some rules for the First World War in Africa, and his own rules for ACW, and it, it kind of set you thinking that actually you could create this stuff for yourself, you didn't need to uh, rely on something that was pre-published, or if it if you did have something that was pre-published it was okay to 
to turn that into whatever you needed it to be to get the games that you needed. So it will mm. actually uh, be up in the northwest of England now, I think, isn't he? It was really quite yeah. um, inspirational in that regard, certainly for me. Yeah, I think for all of us, really, because we kind of we, we turned up at this club where everybody is writing and devising their own rules. Wilmot now is big in the um, Society of Ancients now, I, th I think it is. Oh, no, Lance and Longbow. Or any anyway, one of those. That's right, um, yeah. Yeah, and um, along with a guy called Steve Ayres, who uh, they're both uh, in, in, in the same organisation there. But both those guys, as well as, you know, several others who, who'd set the club up, were very, very keen on writing their own rules, or as you say, if they had a published set of rules, the viewpoint was, right, well, that's the foundation. How do we now build on top of that and make it into what we want? So for, for both you and I, it, we just thought it was normal for everybody to develop their own rule sets and not to buy things off the peg, and I think that's how we ended up doing what we're doing now I mean in, in the interim I wrote here a huge number of rules which were total rubbish um, but it, it you, you know you, it's part of that learning process and I'm sure many people will say you still do Clarkie but um, <laughs> um, but it, it, yeah it, that was the genesis for both of us I mean it was my first war games club I started going there when I was 18 I mean if our maths are correct um, when you were 16 and turned up I must have been 20 but um, right. yeah we um, we both sort of come from that, that same genesis so you could definitely say that your wargaming started in what was basically a a rules writing incubator uh, absolutely that's a great from word the get -go. Yeah. hot house yeah. incubator both are words that we've used and and, uh, and it, it really was I mean within months of joining this club I was exposed to things like variable length bounds and uh, back to back yeah. Kriegspiel gaming and just stuff that I'd never even envisaged it existed because prior to that I'd been I'd been a solo gamer all through my teens um, and uh, using the Airfix guide war games rules which were which by people like Terry Wise which were which were fairly staid and traditional in their approach so to join this organization where you know the more off the wall it was the better um, was was quite a, quite a baptism of fire but but mentally and intellectually stimulating as well yes and it also got wow. you uh, involved in the idea that actually you could be playing a game from a playtest perspective so mm. that it was okay that you weren't playing the finished article you yeah. were as a playtester in some way involved in shaping this um, idea that some other guy had got and you were helping him to get that to what he needed it to be like and it was okay for you to uh, repeat a game to play it one week and to see what happened and play the same thing the following week to see where it took you and, and uh, I don't know maybe it just made us more accommodating towards that style of gaming and as Richard said we used to play committee games uh, we did some role play mm -hmm. games as well we even did a real life role play uh, once <laughs> upon a time somewhere yeah. deep in the depths of my mind is that buried away um, so a, a real variety of things that we would do and that really I think just added to it helps you to understand what it is that you want from the hobby I don't like this, I do like that I'm into this period, there's something about this that stimulates me and it helps you to focus on where you want to go Hmm. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier that some of those earlier sets that you had written either singly or, or together weren't all that great and I, for anyone who is listening that is interested in writing rules you just have to understand just you know, just like with your painting or any other aspect of the hobby, every masterpiece is preceded by a pile of shit. 
If if what you're coming up with isn't working, keep working because yeah, that's yeah. that's how the process works. Yeah, absolutely. So, and and don't very much. don't be afraid to throw away everything you've done and just start from first point of principle again, and and think everything through. You know, you you there's when when we start writing a set of rules we've talked about this before but we tend to put the figures on the table and say what happens now and literally start with every set of rules literally start from the point of saying how would these troops arrive on the table so you 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 don't make any assumption like you know i never say hey i'm going to use the sharp practice model and build on that i always think it through from the first first point uh, onwards every time because yeah the sharp practice model might turn out to be the one we use but on the other hand it might not and it's good to mm -hmm. good to think about what you're attempting to achieve and represent rather than going with preconceived ideas but yeah definitely it's a look, writing rules is um, um, a, a, a skill that, that is developed really you not not so much not so much that but the more you tr the more you do it, the more ideas you have. The more the more little mechanisms you think. Well, I won't use this now, but that's one I quite like. Yeah. Look, you know, I can u maybe use that later. And you, I've got piles and piles of of great big notebooks full of ideas that I've just scribbled down. And once a year, I try and usually over the Christmas period, I try and get those notebooks out and go through them because they're effectively my memory <laughs> um, for the last 30 odd years of wargaming and it gives me a chance to think oh yeah I'd forgotten about that and those things therefore are pertinent in your mind so get yourself a notebook rather than rely thinking I'll remember that when it's important because you will not <laughs> yeah it's really important no. as well isn't it you don't throw these things away you you, mm. you know you hold on to them you remember them you might not use it this time round but you do know that actually at some point at some point in the future probably probably in an instance that's a mile away from when you first thought you would use it so it might be for a different rule set completely different yeah, uh, yeah. situation you might come back to that same mechanic and say actually you know what this works really well yeah. in this situation and you just build those and plug them in yeah so having having gotten together at the club mm -hmm. uh, there there must have been some type of a gap and then Y'all got back together, or well, no, 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 no two fat lardies. Or? Well, uh, uh, to be honest with you, I mean, we kind of make out that we met on day one and became the firmest of friends. We we probably didn't speak for ten oh. years. I was, hated, I was, I was, hated the bloke. Yeah, I was twenty. He was sixteen. There was no way I was talking to a small child. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> my my mates were more sort of the the twenty to thirty year old age group. So, but what? And but I mean, we always we you know we we were in a relatively small club with maybe a dozen people, so we always knew each other, and yeah. we tended mm -hmm. to um, we tended to hook up at war game shows when the bar opened, and uh, <laughs> and ha always have a few pints there because we uh, both like uh, like a beverage or two, and um, mm -hmm. we we got to a point where. I mean, Nick went off to, off to university. Um, I I went off doing different things with my career, but we always gravitated back towards the club. And uh, in the late nineties, um, so that would have been like fifteen years after we first met. In the late nineties, we we went back to play a game that we had really really enjoyed playing a Vietnam War game, um, and. Uh, we Nick set up a table. It was a fantastic table. It had this sort of um, 
like bridge over the River Kwai type um, railway track running through in this valley and paddy fields and an and a elevated road and it looked absolutely fantastic and we got these rules out and we put the figures on the table and started playing and as I say there are a set of rules that we loved but hadn't played for probably 10 years and we went these are awful <laughs> these are absolutely yeah. terrible so that game then turned into a bit of a a workshop session where we all were just sitting around saying well how would this work and I said well you know how would the, why don't we just use something simple like the fire table out of the 1824 Kriegspiel rules where you don't go plus one for this minus one for that you just say it's a good shot or it's an okay shot or it's a poor shot and then just use a dice to determine you know what the what the result will be based on that and Nick said well why don't we use a card activation system and I said, that's ridiculous. I wouldn't have anything to do with the card activation <laughs> system. And we, we both threw, chapped a few ideas in the hat about you know leadership being important and focusing on the men and not the technology. And the, we, it must have been the very early days of email or because I think we exchanged a few emails. And by the following week, we put together a rough set of rules called DMZ. Um, a demilitarised zone which um, which we then did the same scenario with and we went well that actually works so that was that was the point at which we actually you know started working together and it we never stopped but it was it was totally <laughs> accidental it was based on playing a game of of um, you know a rule set that I won't name because I've I've said we you know we thought it was awful um, uh, and then just picking up from there and and developing that and that then after a couple of weeks of playtesting that I said oh this would work for World War Two." so we then went off steered off course veered off course and started doing the rules and what we created was I being shot mum um, mm-hmm. and at the time I was writing some articles for War Games Illustrated and I just said in there hey you know, we've got this set of World War Two rules. If anybody's interested, drop me an email. I'll send you a copy. Um, and uh, we we did that, and people started saying, "You've got to publish." And so we said, "Oh, we don't want to publish. You know, this is this is this is just f- for us, and you know, anybody who's interested." And so I started printing them out on my. Um, bubble jet, ink jet, whatever it was, printer and putting them in the poster people. <laughs> and then I worked out after a couple of months and it was cost and they were sending me like three pounds as a sort of that'll cover everything, postage and whatever. And I worked out that it was actually I was actually costing me fifty P a copy more than than I was charging for it. <laughs> and at that point the you know the demand was becoming quite large. So we had, we went to a printer and um we got five hundred copies printed and uh, which I thought oh that's going to last forever and then they kept selling and then I got approached by we had about 100 copies left and I got approached by the Origins show people and they said we'd like we'd like to nominate I Ain't Big Shopman for an Origins award well I'd never heard of it and he said you'll need to send us eight copies of the rules I thought I've only got 100 (laughs) left I said no don't worry I'm not really interested (laughs) Which probably wasn't the best <laughs> business yeah. decision in my life. But um, anyway, very soon after that, we realised we were going to have to get them properly printed. So, you know, we had, I don't know how many we had done, a couple of thousand or whatever. And that was, and it, um, so we ended up being a publishing house um, uh, and, you know, rules developing and publishing as well. 
and and it kind of just grew it's just grown from there and I Ain't Been Shot Mom is on its third edition currently, is that it, correct? It is, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And um, and probably, you know, probably its last edition. Um, in as much as, you know, I think after three editions we felt we got it right. Um, yeah. to, to be honest, it's really the second edition because what happened was once we got it, once we decided to go to the printers and have it done, version two was really version 1.1 because the previous version had just been sort of wire-bound and um, pretty, you know cheaply put together whereas the second edition was the edition that should have been version one and version mm. three was basically the second edition where we got everything right and um it just it just keeps on selling i mean it's been um it's 18 years old as a rule set which is you know as i say in its sort of second real edition and it, it just keeps selling i just had to uh, i just had to have another couple of thousand reprinted just to um keep the stock levels up and people seem to people seem to really enjoy it. and what I find interesting actually is that it's that <clears throat> you know I said about I said I'd never have anything to do with card activation a lot of people felt exactly the same way but increasingly over the years people have come around to it and what at the time seemed extreme and odd um, now feels fairly normal to have a, gar a game with cards in it uh, and and we, we find that every year you, you get a new cohort of people joining in and playing it for the first time and saying, oh, I heard the name and I thought it was a silly name and I didn't like the idea of the cards, um, but I'm glad I found it because it, you know it's changed my perception of it. Yeah, it, it's funny what happens when, when people will actually take a, take a minute to try something out. Yeah, it's funny old world, isn't it? <laughs> mm. <laughs> so in addition to I Ain't Been Shot Mom, which was, your I guess, your very first, what were some of your other earliest published games. Nick, you came out with a couple, didn't you? Well, we, I mean, fairly quickly after IBSM, mm. because mm. I guess we were developing things um, alongside, mm. you know, other, other ideas, because you play one game one week and you might want to change it into something different the next. Uh, the earliest ones that I can recall we pushed through were uh, Kiss Me Hardy, which was the Napoleonic naval set of rules that, um, that mm -hmm. I'd worked on, and that was... I. Uh, I approached those from the perspective that um, nobody in our club would ever consider playing Napoleonic Naval because the rules that were in place at that time um, were were so difficult and so hard to use that you needed a degree in seamanship even to try and get them out, the, uh, you know, on the table. So I we developed mm -hmm. I um, Kiss Me Hardy as a simple solution to try and get more people at our club playing Napoleonic naval games and the byproduct of that was we found that we had a mechanism that was really really easy to use and we thought actually you know what maybe uh, there's a, a, an outing for this as well maybe we can maybe we can uh, see where this takes us and see if there's a product here as well and that um, again was very well received uh, and we moved on to do Bag the Hun which was a set of air warfare rules which is now in its second edition, I think, um, from that. So we sort of spun off these ideas fairly quickly, um, and they were very well received, which gave us, of course, some energy to crack on with more things. Yeah, it's, it's funny, actually, uh, looking back. At the time, rules were cheap. Um, you, you, you could produce a set of rules for £5, and, and, and that was, you know, you, it would, they'd be pretty cheaply produced, and... Uh, they they wouldn't be as extensive as rule sets are now, but we produced mm -hmm. the rule sets like if the Lord spares us, which was a set of um, rules for um, uh, the Middle East in the in the Great War, 
Um, Nick's great uncle served there. My great uncle served there, so we had sort of family connections to to the area. Sure, sure. And um, we we wanted to produce a set of rules which wasn't just about the trenches of the of the Western Front, but was actually about the more mobile but or more larger landscapes, if you like, of the Middle East. Um, and that was a set of rules that we produce, and and it's never gone to second edition, but it still sells today. And it's if, if people are you know fighting the you know campaign of 1918 in in you know, Palestine, I think it's pretty much the only set of rules out there that covers that. And that's because mm -hmm. I think times have changed now. People um, uh, quite rightly like rule sets that are full of colour and pretty pictures, um, but that of course pushes up the production costs to such a level that you, you no longer get um, professional rule publishing houses producing rule sets for quite specific niche marketplaces because right. they're just not going to sell enough copies. You literally aren't going to sell enough copies to cover the, to cover the expense of the, the print run. I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. When I produce Sharp Practice, the front end costs of that were £30,000. Well, um, there's no way you can spend thirty thousand pounds on producing rule sets for the middle, the the um, Great War in the Middle East. You'd right, have to be yeah. you'd have to be selling them for fifteen thousand pound a copy to break even because only <laughs> only two people would buy them. And so <laughs> so um, it, it it's a shame in a way that some of the rule sets that we used to produce just are not viable um, these days uh, because mm -hmm. because you you have to choose big popular subjects in order to to get the volume of sales to cover the um to cover the the, the cost of producing the big glossy full color rule sets and i i kicked against well we both kicked against that for years and said no we'll stick with black and white it's going to allow us to produce you know uh, high quality products because it's the game that's important and not the color but i i hate to admit it but at the end of the day, when we started producing nice glossy sets of rules, we sold about ten times as many copies. So you you can't you can't kick against mm -hmm. you can't swim against the tide. Um, right. But I think the other thing, though, Rich, that's, that was helpful there was we decided early on as well that we would also support PDF publications. Yeah, and, that's true. Um, I th I, my memory is that we were one of the earliest yeah, uh, yeah. sort of groups of war games publishers to do that on the basis that actually once you've published it in PDF, it's you know you it's gone out there completely and anybody could send it to whoever they wanted, and mm. you'd be mad to try and do that for any kind of business on mm. any kind of business basis. Mm. Uh, and you know, I'm, I'm sure that while that did go on, it also gave us a core of people that were familiar with our products uh, and that could have a go with the rules and I think that um, it had two benefits to us really one was that it allowed other people to come aware of the work we were doing and also it allowed uh, you know us to, us to get out some of those rules in a format that would never otherwise have got out there yeah I mean there, there is a big issue with um, intellectual property theft um, uh, and people passing on PDF copies of things or putting it on Scribid and on all these different sites um, but ultimately, my feeling is that that ninety nine percent of war gamers are honest and decent people, and they know that for yeah. you know um, uh, for a business like Two Fat Lardies, that actually giving their mate a copy of uh, the the rules is is actually taking money out of our pockets, and most people don't want to do that. There are always going to be a few cheapskates who are going to do that. But to be honest with you, my experience is. I often get contacted by people who say, look, I feel really bad about this, but my friend has given me a copy of 
your rules I'd like to pay you for it because you know I think that's the right thing to do so I think that our trust in people when we went this is an old old issue but when yeah, we decided yeah. to go uh, down the PDF route which must be 15 years ago we found that our trust in people was repaid by their their common decency and and um, yeah. and goodness so we never regretted doing that and we still sell rule sets in in PDF although um, increasingly with full colour rule sets people do tend to uh, prefer well it's interesting actually people, I was going to say people tend to prefer the hard copy but you do find that with tablets um, you know iPad whatever uh, tablets a lot of people use them for wargaming now so maybe that maybe maybe the situation changes every year yeah <laughs> now aside from the business aspect mm. of lessons learned over the last 15 16 17 years how have you how have you gentlemen grown personally as rules designers you know what are what are some lessons you've learned that you could also share with us with us amateurs I'm growing fatter <laughs> I was hoping for intellectually physically physically is, is, a, is an important point as well yeah. um, that, sadly I think that's middle age rather than designing rules that's done that to me um, how have I um, I I think I listen more to other people um, now than I used to do but again, maybe that's maybe that's a part of growing old as well. You you, you tend to uh, you tend to be less certain of your own brilliance when you get to middle age, whereas when you're a teenager, you know you're right, and everybody else is an idiot. Um, <laughs> you discover later in life that that wasn't the case at all. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think I'm I'm more inclined to listen to other people, and and I like to see developing a set of rules as a Socratic process, where the guys who are doing the play testing are equal partners in it along with us you know if if a play tester says hey look i've got an idea i think you should change that rule that is just as valid as nick saying it to me or me saying it to nick and that that i think is really important because um we we tend as rule writers we can tend to live in an ivory tower but it's only our interaction with with play testers that makes us realize you know when we're right and when we're wrong and you have to take that on board. You you can't um, you can't assume that you know best because you, you, I certainly don't. Mm, I th I think I've become more curious actually as a as a gamer now as I as I head into my fiftieth year than I would have been previously. I think well, as a younger gamer, I was probably quite dismissive of other games if I didn't like them for whatever reason, and that could be based on no information whatsoever. I just didn't like the idea of playing that game. I would have said, oh, I'm not going to go into that at all. But nowadays, I find myself much more curious about other games and much more curious about how they work and what people get from them and how they enjoy them. Uh, and a phrase, uh, Richard, that you use quite a lot in your published... Um, Articles in that in, in war games, soldiers and strategy, etc. is about war game being a broad church, and I think mm. what I accept mm. now is that is that you know we share a wonderful hobby, um, and there are so many different outlets for that for that hobby yeah. that actually every one of them is as valid as the next one, uh, and I will stop and look at every game now as I go around a, uh, a show, uh, and be interested in what's going on there and how people are enjoying it. And I guess that's from two perspectives. It's because you like to see people that you know coming into the hobby uh, and looking at what the entry points are in that hobby and wondering, you know, what is it that that, that floats this person's boat when it comes to getting underway with wargaming, uh, and also I guess because it informs our own thinking as to as to what we want to have in our own games. 
um, and increasingly as as time goes on I think the the message that I get there is is that simple simple is always good you know I know it's a very old um, cliche but I think probably with the set of rules that we've released uh, releasing now the water tanker that I know we will talk about fairly soon uh, that is probably the simplest set of rules that we've released in uh, since we've been working together so simplicity mm. is, is, a, is a key factor I think that as we go on I'd like our rules to be even simpler and even more intuitive I think that's I think that's very true I think what you have to what what we've attempted to do and certainly if you look at chain of command what we wanted to do there was keep the firing mechanism and the movement mechanism really really simple so that once you played one or two turns not games one or two turns you knew exactly how it worked now the reason for that is movement and firing take up an awful lot of any war game um, but if you can memorize that where you don't even have to think about it that's there locked away it's almost become part of your gaming dna mm. then that allows you to focus on the important thing which is the command decisions that you have to make so in chain of command you roll your, your command dice and then you then have to decide how you're going to use them are you going to use them one at a time what order are you going to use them in are you going to use them all all together at the same time or some at the same time some before the others and what are you going to use to do it with now that is not about um, making decisions based on complex rule mechanisms it's about making command decisions on how you as the platoon commander in that example can influence your men to get the best possible result so the game it's the game mechanisms are simple but the questions that the game asks are not simple yeah. they are they are um, challenging and stimulating um, and that's exactly what we've also tried to do with Water Tanker, which, which um, again is a very, very simple game to actually play, very easy to uh, remember, memorise. I mean, we we find that when we take it round the shows or you know to play test it, we don't even take the rules with us because we you know you just know them. But that doesn't make it simple. It's a case of trying to make the decisions within the game that the, that tank commander would be making and that's what makes it interesting but by keeping those rules simple it allows the gamers to focus on the parts of the game that they that they should be doing which is those command decisions right and in if i can inject some some real world experience mm -hmm. into that yeah i recently took a course uh from the army uh what's called maneuver training foundation uh certification which basically means having completed the class i'm officially certified to teach tactics in the US Army now yeah. and the, my instructor who's also my NCOIC my non-commissioned officer in charge yeah. he put it pretty simply you know you've got you've got the art of tactics and you have the science of tactics mm. and the science of tactics is how far you can in, you know how far you can reasonably expect to move uh, how far your weapons shoot rates of fire you know expected effects uh, on the target, that sort of thing. Hmm. But the art is applying that in an intuitive way so that you don't have to yeah. sit there and think about the science. And yeah. and yeah. what you've described with the with the rules behind fire and movement for hmm. chain of command, that strips away the science part so you're only dealing with the art. That's exactly right. And that's, you, that's absolutely right. And one of the things that we find with the rules that we write is because of the research, you know, the, the way we think, the way the way we operate, the way we work, 
funnily enough, people who are, who are in um, those military situations actually understand pretty much intuitively what we're doing because we are trying to replicate the art, as you say, and the science is still in there, but it's, it's subliminal. Right. It's, and it works so incredibly well. <laughs> I, get, I get frustrated when people say, oh, I don't get it. Well, that's fine, but have you really tried it? Mm-hmm. You know, in, um, in talking to uh, our mutual friend Henry Hyde, mm. You know, he's he's talked about chain of command on multiple occasions on various podcasts, and mm. they're not sure that they're getting it 100%, mm. but they are getting enough to realize that they need to keep at it. Mm. <laughs> and I, I can definitely see where he's coming from with that, because I've, I haven't played chain of command enough. I'd like to play more, and I, I should be... I should just keep a table set up and even do it solo if I have to, but it's... It's where it needs to be, and I really, really enjoy it. Um, That's good to know. But yeah, it's it's definitely you know taking the taking the science out of it and dealing solely with those decisions is exactly where it needs to be. Um, and you guys have done a really great job at it, at that. Um, now on another podcast, uh, Nick, you had mentioned the experience that people are having with the game, and I guess Chain of Command kind of falls into this also. On the Ludology podcast, uh, Ludology is a podcast that examines it, its tagline is the why of gaming, and it talks mostly about uh, board games. But the uh, the hosts on it are both noted board game designers, and they talk they really get down in the weeds about the psychology of gaming and how mechanisms work and that sort of thing. But recently, more and more, they've been talking about the experience the player has in approaching game design from the experience standpoint and you know what type of emotions are they trying to elicit out of out of the player yeah so when we when we approach game design or game playing from the experience we want to elicit there i mean that's definitely something you see in the lardy rules because you you guys are definitely trying to replicate the experience and the decisions that a leader at that level needs to make yeah that that and that's where the simplification yep, comes that's in. that's right and we also want to influence that decision where we can by um enabling the player to make decisions based on the doctrine of the time as well right. so we so we're always playing the the four games of the past the battles of the past through the eyes of the present day what we try to do in our rules is actually make those players uh, encourage them to make the kind of decisions that the people that were really on the ground at that event uh, would have been able to make based on the doctrine and training that they had received. So I'm going to go back to, um, I've said this before on other podcasts, so forgive me if you're listening to this for the second time, but under uh, the Bag the Hun rules that we wrote, for instance, one of the key things that sits at the heart of Bag the Hun, aerial dogfighting rules, um, is we, we base them on um, Salem Milan's rules for air fighting. So this was the uh, fighter pilot, the Battle of Britain, who who gave out ten rules for air fighting. This is what you should be doing if you want to be a successful fighter pilot in the RAF at that time. Uh, and, and pilots kind of signed up to that as being this is what we should be gravitating towards. This is how we should be flying. This is what we should be doing to make our attacks. This is the kind of thing we should be doing. So we encourage people in the rules where they where they do that kind of thing. So form- flying in formation, retaining your formation, having attitude bonus really makes a difference to you under those rules. 
um, and we try to do that in other things as well. It's all around. I mean, Rich, you're, you're the. I mean, you can talk about this maybe from the Second World War perspective of, of, of what it means for platoon leaders. Yeah, well, certainly. I mean, different nations fight in slightly different ways. I mean, you only have to look at the Germans who abandoned the 50 mil mortar as soon as possible because they got fed up carrying it around, and the British, for whom the 50, the, the two-inch mortar, almost an identical weapon, but armed with smoke and very little HE, became the absolute um, tactical centre point of the way their platoon would operate. They would they would put down smoke. They would uh, they would uh, establish a base of fire, um, and they would manoeuvre using that smoke as cover, and then make a final assault with grenades and 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 um, bayonets fixed. Um, uh, and what we tr what we never do is say to people you have got to do it like that. But what we do is we mm -hmm. reward people who use gamers who use the doctrine for that nationality in that in that conflict because that's the way their guys were trained and that's that's what they're good at right. you know you don't see Austrian Napoleonic battalions in order mixed moving across the table in the way yeah. the French did but that shouldn't mean you say to the Austrian commander you can't try it however if he does try it he should be really rubbish at it because his men have never his men have <laughs> never done it yeah. and and if I can come in there as well, it also goes right back to that very first time when we moved away from a published set of rules. You spoke about that Vietnam mm. game we played in. One of the things that made us say this is just not right, this, is, this isn't giving the game that, that we needed to give, is that um, some, some squads took some hits and some guys went down and the rest of the squad just got up and marched on off to the tree line as if that never happened. And you just think that is completely wrong. So, you know, right. the, the human emphasis, there was no human content of what was going on in that game. And really, that, you know, it's the complete opposite, in fact, of what probably would have happened. So, and it really kind of opened our eyes to that. And we've always, I think, kept that focus there about what is the hu what's going on for the human that is in That's this That's exactly right. It's the human experience. War war warfare, you know, if you are being shot at, with a 303 round or a 7.62 round or a, or a 2.85 round, you are not thinking, blimey, that's a 2.85 round. You're thinking, bloody hell, somebody's shooting at me. <laughs> and, and it's... Right, yeah. And it's why machine guns yeah, can drive yeah. off well, tanks. Well, that's right. You, yeah. you, know, you put enough fire in the right place, and those guys, if, if nothing else, they become blind, they, they button up, they become uncertain. And it's re replicating that, and people will say, oh, but that's, that can't possibly happen. But you go, hold on a minute, it did happen. I know that, I know that the Bren right. gun cannot penetrate the armour on a Panther tank. But equally, I've spoken to veterans who've said we were trained that when that tank comes down that road, you fire at the driver's vision slip, and you try and you try and you know uh, if if the commander's out of his turret, you try and make them um, button up. Nick, you were telling me about a, a, a training, a United States Army training film that you yep. watched the other day on YouTube that you forwarded on to me, and I haven't had a chance to look at it yet. But yeah, mm. YouTube. YouTube is a wonderful thing. There's a U.S. Army training film. It's called Crack That Tank, mm. uh, and I recommend it to you. Where the it's talking about how infantry can take on advancing armor, even if they've got no anti-tank weapons. It talks about use of rifle grenades. It talks about the use of um, using your small arms fire to aim at vision slits, and using your you know the, your Molotov cocktail that you just happen to have in your uh, in your in your kit bag uh, to also use on tanks. But um, yeah, so it's 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 about people being able to think. Well, actually, at the end of the day, I'm the driver of this tank, perhaps, and and uh, you know he's under machine gun fire. Well, it, 
he might keep on driving, but then again, mm. he might not. He might say, "Hang on a minute, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop here, or uh, maybe I'll even reverse back a bit because I don't like this. Might be small arms fire now, but I don't know what it's going to be in in well, it's 10 a psychological, time. right? Um, so it's, we try and build that. It's the fact that, that there yeah. is a psychological element to warfare as well as the physical element to warfare. It's not I haven't been shot yet, therefore I am operating at 100% efficiency. You know, there's a big line between a man operating at 100% efficiency and operating at 0% efficiency because he's dead. And normally men in action yeah. are somewhere in the yeah. middle. Yeah. And and the courage it takes mm -hmm. to fire your weapon. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, SLA Marshall did that famous study yeah. of, you know, men yeah. in combat. And, yeah. and much... You know, he, he got yeah. down to... Yeah. I was just going to mention... I was just going to mention Slam. Much as he was derided for what he said, I reckon the reason Slam didn't do all of the research needed was because he already knew the answer. He's spoken to enough people and seen enough <laughs> things to know it. And so he thinks, hey, I'm not going to interview all those guys. I'm going to go down the pub for a couple of weeks. And then I, I know what the report's going to say anyway. <laughs> and, and he, you know, to people, a lot of people say, oh, it, Marshall is discredited. No, he's not. No, he's not. What he has to say is still yeah. utterly relevant and pertinent today. <laughs> right, and and speaking specifically on the topic mm. of shooting machine guns and tanks, mm. um, I forget exactly which mm. caliber it is, uh, recoilless mm. rifle. But my my dad came up in the U.S. <clears throat> Army in the '60s, and he was trained on recoilless mm. rifles and how to engage tanks with them. And he said that the the one he was familiar with had a used a 50 caliber spotting oh, round, yeah, yeah. so it was a 50 caliber, you know, in coaxially mounted with the recoilless rifle. And the, the preferred technique was you engage the target with your unit's 50 cal yeah. machine guns and you use your spotter round and it sounds just the same as those machine guns. So if the tank uh, doesn't uh. back up from the, from the machine guns, you've got your spotter round in there mixed in with all the other 50 cal rounds and then you let off with the 106 or 90 or whatever caliber yeah, yeah. rifle was. And uh, so exactly what you're talking about. You, you, it might be small arms now, but it might be something much, much larger. Yeah, absolutely right. And that, that yeah, so it's absolutely that uncertainty of the way that the human being is going to react and respond in warfare, and that we try and reflect in the rules, but we then temper that with the ability of the the key leaders on the battlefield to try and manage that and deal with that as best they can. And it's <clears throat> it's almost. Well, it's it's battlefield friction to use use a term that people always criticise us for using. Oh, yes. But it's it's about not just fighting the enemy; it's about fighting the environment that you're you're operating in as well. Um, and I, yeah. that's what real warfare is about, and therefore that's what we try and reflect in our rules. Yeah, and and that's something that I forget who said it first, but I, I've heard it said or read it that if it doesn't have friction, it's not yeah. a war game. Uh, 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 that, I mean, if I didn't say that, I should have done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and I think also that part of the answer is again one of your earlier questions: Have we sort of grown as rule designers? It's it's an acceptance and realization that that's got to be a key aspect of of any decent rule yeah. set. Yeah. Yeah. Although Absolutely. not not that isn't always um, a popular viewpoint. A lot of war gamers are still keen. To have absolute complete control over their troops and helicopter vision and all that, and that, and we don't criticise mm -hmm. that. Um, you know, it's it just means that maybe the game that we're producing isn't for them. But what we hope is that, and yeah. one of the things that we have learned is 
rather than just try and re um, represent what's happening in warfare in the in the manner of a simulation because a lot of what we're talking about here you know any military organization would want to in, include in a simulation but what you also have to do as a, as a war game designer is remember the game aspect and make sure that the mechanisms that you use to create a plausible simulation also have to be mechanisms that create a fun game and if you can get the two things working in tandem plausible simulation so a military man like yourself will appreciate it and fun game so an 11 year old me would would um, would appreciate and enjoy it then you've got the best of both worlds um, so, and that's the real yeah. challenge as a game designer is to 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 have both of those things in the same box of chocolates. Yeah, and I, I do need to back up real quickly uh, to my example with the recoilless rifles because that is my subliminal message that I'm entering mm. into you guys to come up with a Cold War version of what a tanker. So <laughs> it's very achievable. It's very so, achievable. <laughs> I'm I'm a big fan of friction and rules. I don't I think that's that's where the challenge lies because at the end of the day, you know, I'm a big believer in, for example, variable yeah. movement rates for for units. And the example I've used before, and people, you know, if you want to fast forward two minutes to get past this description, <laughs> go ahead. The example I use is um, when I was in Afghanistan, I was. A lot of my, well, actually, all of my operations outside the wire were, were mounted in vehicles. Uh, most of those were on roads, um, but sometimes we went off road. And there's one particular instance where we were going cross country, and we looked on the map, and oh, it's you know it's clear going on the map. We should be fine. And we get out there, and it's all open and no problem. It's just farm field. And then we start driving over the farm fields. Well. They don't have 200-yard long farm fields mm. like we do in the West because you know that's a furlong and that's you know that's where you turn your that's where yeah. you turn your yeah. oxen around with your plow. They've got maybe 50-yard mm. long farm fields and they've got a little two and a half foot berm marking the edge of the of the farm field. So here we are in these supposedly high mobility military wheeled vehicles also known as the Humvee, emphasis on high mobility, going two miles an hour because we're stopping every 50 yards to, to climb a two-foot berm. Yeah. And me and the turret being at the very <laughs> at the end mm. of the stick, so to speak, getting knocked around pretty good. So, yeah, yeah I mean, you don't know until you get there, and your, your troops don't know until they get there, and so you might tell them, yeah, you should be able to go 40 miles an hour here. It's it's overland and that's what the manual says we should be able to do overland but lo and behold here we are going too because you know that's but, uh, the reality funnily enough I, I had a debate which is probably a polite way of putting it on TM, <laughs> TMP with a guy um, uh, in the UK up in <laughs> well that says it all right there doesn't <laughs> no it? comment um, uh, yeah. say no more and he insisted that uh, no you you know you should know how far your troops are going to move well I actually I was seething after an exchange on there I was I thought I'm so angry I took the dog out for a walk and and in just a couple of miles in the terrain around my village I I counted about seven or eight distinctly different types of terrain so we had a field that had been that hadn't been harvested we had a field that had been harvested we had a field that had been ploughed 
We had a muddy path because it was low down. We had a dry path because it was higher up on an elevated bit of land. And I just thought, well, how long would it take me to sprint across that field? Now, these days, it would probably take me several days to sprint across anything because I, I can barely run a bath, <laughs> let alone 100 yards. Um, but, uh, it, you know, thinking back to my prime when I was a runner as a young man, um, I, I would know that it would take me about 11 seconds or 12 seconds or whatever to run 100 metres. But 100 metres across that field, you just have no I, I literally wouldn't have been able to guesstimate it because you, you don't know what you, you, you're going to come across. Mm. So when you have a set of rules, and I always use this example, where I've got troops in a building on one side of the road, and I know because they've got a standard movement of let's say nine inches that I can run across that road and get behind the building on the other side before my enemy can react to that is just wrong because it's not just about knowing how quickly my men are going to advance because you know some of them might be not hear my order some of them might be looking the other way some of them might be you know um, just scared to death um, but equally it's how quickly the enemy respond to my um, movement that I can't predict so that's that's part yes. part of, of um, part of uh, variable length yeah. movement is not about how far I move but how quickly my movement is reacted to uh, and so you know we yes. have to accept that you can say a turn is two minutes of action but maybe some turns are a minute and a half and some turns are two and a half minutes because that is the way things work um, you know nothing is precise like that especially well nothing's precise like that when you go shopping right. let alone in combat <laughs> <laughs> and and I can do a number yeah. of things to influence how that would work mm. as well so if I wanted to send a, a section off down the road and run around the edge of the field and reappear on the other side I'd, I'd probably find that I'd be more successful at doing that if I put a decent NCO with them who was experienced who who understood my command intent who knew the men and who, who could really give them a good boot up the backside to get them to go at the speed they needed to go at um, you know that I can use my command assets to actually make it more likely that I can get the outcome that I need but of course I can only send that sergeant off with that section if I send him over there with them he's not over on on the other side with a group of other blokes who are putting down some fire and then how do I get them to motivate and activate and, and do what I want them to do oh dear I've only got limited command assets mm. they're really great if I had a whole team yeah. of top quality well, guys who I knew I could rely on <laughs> yeah uh, mm. Yeah, or I had omnipresence. That's right. I could be everywhere, but the truth is, you have to rely on other people. Uh, and as anybody who's who's ever worked with other people in any form, whether in the military or in other organisations, uh, you can't control other people the way that you really want to. And you have to let it go and deal with the uncertainty that comes with that complex environment. Yeah, absolutely. And and really, we're we're a big fan of our Secretary of Defence. James Mattis, mm -hmm. former Marine General, and to kind of crib off what we're all saying, especially uh, Richard, what you're saying about uh, the enemy mm -hmm. reacting to what you're doing, the yeah. enemy gets a vote. Yeah, you know that yeah. that's a big part of friction is yeah. that the exactly. enemy gets a vote, and I think some of the older rules, I don't want to say ignored that, but they certainly didn't take it into consideration. And what you're talking about with uh, looking at turn length and variable movement and that sort of thing as the reaction mm. to what you're doing is a is a really really good way of putting it i forgot you might have been on with uh well it was in the oddcast you said that did isn't it 
you had said exactly mm. that. That about the reaction, yeah, the enemy, yeah, prob enemy probably, reaction yeah. to. I think, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, the enemy uh, gets a vote. It's great way, it, isn't it? And when I heard that, when I heard you say that, that instantly mm. crystallized in my mind what friction mm. in a war game means, because it's what you're doing, how well you're doing it, in your situation, in your environment, plus. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, what the enemy yeah. does you you might be doing things absolutely perfectly if you were in a vacuum and nobody else was interfering with with that little bubble that you were in but no matter how perfectly you might be doing it the guy on the other side might be there to burst that bubble i was going to say i think one of the things historically that war games rules used to do was they they were a bit like um they were a bit like films so that one minute you would be you'd be the Duke of Wellington, and the next minute you'd be Richard Sharp. They they allowed you to, to zoom in on that little bit of action around the sand pit near La Haye Sant, and then you'd zoom out and you'd be the Duke of Wellington up on the ridge, and then you'd zoom in and you'd be the the NCO defending the gate at Hougoumont. And what we've what we've tried to do. Um, with our um, rules is say well you you can't be all things you can't be omnipresent you can't be influencing the gate at Hougoumont and the fighting at La Haison and be issuing orders to um, you know uh, uh, the the Dutch Nassauers on on your on your flank you you can only be one person on that battlefield and our rules attempt to place you in the position of that individual making the command decision and present you with the command decisions that are pertinent to somebody in that position well thank you for that beautiful segue because that leads right into my next question I wrote the script <laughs> um, and, and, yeah and exactly I mean how how do you go about deciding what level of mm. command you're wanting to model? Because at the end of the day, in in my estimation, Lardy rules are about the level of command that mm. you are trying to model and the decisions that that level of commander needs to. I know I've, I know I've talked a lot, but do you mind if I answer that one, Nick? Just so you can pop in on the end. No, I, th I think uh. it's probably direct. Well, the way I think you should answer that one. You do, yeah. I'll tell you right. right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, the way I do that is very simple. Is is I decide what the smallest, what I decide how far I want to zoom in on the action, and then I go two two levels up. So if I decide I want to focus on what yeah. fire teams are doing, what the Bren team is doing, and what the rifle team is doing, then my my basic tactical unit is is a, is a team. So the next level up is a squad or a section and the next level up is platoon. So my basic tactical unit is going to be my, yep. my teams, and therefore the commander is going to be the platoon commander. Yep. If I decide that I want to be a brigadier and commander brigade, because I like the level of support that is attached to my World War II brigade, you know, with its own 25-pounders and its own whatever, then I can go down the other way. So if I'm a brigadier, I'm in, in the British sense, I'm going to be commanding several battalions, that's one level down and so the next level down is the company so my smallest tactical unit in that situation will be a company and that will allow me to make decisions pertinent to the brigade commander I won't be deciding what each of my platoons will be doing I won't be deciding where the pit is deployed but I will I will be deciding where yeah. when I'm gonna feed in my reserve companies when I'm sending in when I'm sending in a battalion I'm deciding whether I'm going in uh, t two up, two back, 
when do I feed in my uh, how well not so much feed in or how do I schedule what time do I schedule the uh, um, uh, jump off time for the for the second wave and then I'll be deciding at what point I send in my reserve battalions because some of this at that level is not going to be stuff that I should really be interfering with once I've pressed the button and the brigade attack has started my battalions will go in they will have a plan saying first two companies jump off at 4am second two companies follow up at 4.45 now I shouldn't be interfering with that as a brigade commander but I should then be able to say well the fourth loam shears who are my reserve I will commit them at the relevant point and, and they're, in my, uh, they're, they're in my hands to do with as I want and equally using my support assets to go in there so it's two up or two down depending on which way you want to look at it I'm going to add mm. to that because I, I think that's absolutely right and I think there's also a mm. factor in there when it comes to games design is uh, what level of mm. game do people wish to play and and we, we see um, huge amounts of uh, games at the moment we know that people have very little available time people don't seem to have the desire uh, and this is through my own view now people don't seem to have the desire to paint armies to get massed battles going on at the moment there's a trend towards um, you know small units small games that I can fight on my dining room table so actually if, if, if I want to make something that's attractive to the gamer and I want other people to play the games that I'm thinking about I need to be um, aware of the size of game that they want to play so while it might fascinate me uh, about how I can f how I can recreate the logistical challenges of keeping a core supplied during the retreat from Moscow um, there's probably not much point in making a, a set of war games rules about that <laughs> if nobody's going to be interested in playing it I mean that's exactly what True. we teach yeah. you know you yeah. need to as a platoon leader, you know you need to yeah. know what's going on two levels down, but you also need to know yeah. you also need to know the mission two levels up. So as a platoon leader, we teach them you need to know the battalion mission. And if you're listening and you're a military man or woman and are interested in this type of stuff, and you're not already playing or at least reading Two Fat Lardy's mm. rules, well, we do try hard. Um, right. People tend to think of us as two fat blokes who laugh a lot yeah. on podcasts, but <laughs> to be honest with you, there is, yeah, there's a, there's a, a lot of research that goes on behind this stuff, and, and, and history is where both of us are really coming from, um, and that's where our interests you know really really lie yeah. um, uh, and mm -hmm. and when when we're doing it it's I always set out as with the initial right. goal and this was as true with I ain't been shot mum as it is today that I want a military person to pick up a set of rules that we write and say I really understand where they get these guys are coming from but equally I want somebody who's who's a, a 12 year old who really loves big tanks to say hey these are fantastically fun <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely now, again, you guys have read the script, so you're feeding into my next question because I kind of flipped some stuff around. Now, Nick, you had mentioned, you know, there there's definitely a commercial aspect to some of the some of the decisions you make as a company, as designers. Um, what what set mm -hmm. or sets of rules don't sell so well that you wish um, people would pay okay, more well, attention? Okay, well, I think to? we're going to give the same answer on I this one, so. Richard. I would imagine uh, because I think I think the one that um, that Two Fat Lardies produce and publish, which is most overlooked by gamers, is is the one that probably, uh, from my purest view, would say is the one that everybody should actually have in their collection, which is the Kriegspiel um, 
set of rules that, that we offer. And mm. because in there you will see the origin of the hobby and you can almost trace the descendant of any other rule set or application from that uh, from those set of rules. And if you're lucky enough to play a Kriegspiel, um, you really get to understand the concept of friction. And you get to understand the idea of how how uh, staff were trained to operate. You know, and if, if you are a non-military person, uh, it's also a very interesting insight to that mm. as well. So, would you agree, Richard? Yeah. Kriegspiel is oh, the, definitely. Is the I mean, one. it nearly um, it was the first set of rules we ever we ever published in colour, and it nearly broke the bank um, because you just think, hey, here's a set of rules written in 1824 by a Prussian guy who was a veteran of the Napoleonic Wars, um, and really, this book is is what should be the wargaming bible. And I was determined to do it justice by, you know, producing it in beautiful colour so you could see how all the different blocks should be and what it looks like on the map. Um, and we put a lot of money in that. And um, and about one man and his uh, his dog bought it, um, which was <laughs> which was really sad because um, I had we produced you know several maps to go with it and we've got the Meckle map we've got the um, the original um, Meckle map which we did we've got we did a big map of Koenigratz based on a survey that was um, taken in 1866 after the battle there uh, we've got the Metz map which is huge I mean literally it, it, it you could carpet your house with it it's so big um, and we, we ended <laughs> up producing these really on the grounds that we we did so because we really desperately wanted them to be available and there's lots more that I'd like to publish but they they just don't sell in sufficient volumes and and yet they are the they are the starting point from for everything and what's interesting is i mean there's there's an active Kriegspiel group here in the uk and they're only just up the road from me about 20 miles away um uh, but when those guys t uh, play a Kriegspiel, what tends to happen is you fight it through to the point where the armies meet so you're you're really um a lot of the game is focused on the approach march and how you deal with how you deal with scouting, how you deal with identifying the enemy's location, mm -hmm. how you then react to that, how you try and process that information, and of course, by the time your commanders get the information, it's it's uh, it's out of date. So you have to decide which of those loaves of information are still fresh and which are stale. So it's a tremendously interesting game, and what tends to happen is when you when the two sides are actually brought into the same room to see the. Um, see the umpire's map because it's tended you have three rooms blue blue team in one room with their map red team in another room with their map and then the umpire in their room with ev all the information on it and what tends to happen is that by the time that the, the two sides meet one side has obviously already right. won because they've outmaneuvered their opponent yeah and and if you're uh, if you're not into war right. game at all and i don't know how mm. how mm. anybody who's listening to this podcast would um mm. would feel mm. about this but if you're in the business world so mm. most war gamers mm. do it for you know mm. hobby purposes if you're in the business world then actually Kriegspiel is great to understand mm. corporate strategy as well you know we talk about um in in Kriegspiel you're looking at things like vision command leadership strategy logistics supply communication planning information gathering mm. administration personal attitude and even the intuition and how you combine all those to mm. get victory 
it is very similar to the world of corporate I mean, strategy, actually. Mm. And you know, we know that lots of terms carry across from military into corporate. Mm. You know, campaigns, etc., are all caught up in the words that we use. And it's an interesting insight into the way that business can gain competitive it's, advantage as well. So, a leadership team. Should that's I mean, that's an interesting point. Uh, interesting point. I mean, I remember when I worked in in uh, in the city in London years ago. A lot of guys would have Sun Tzu or um, uh, Clausewitz on their yeah. bookshelves. But the one they really want to have is is Kriegspiel, and they want to try it out because that would actually teach them something more than um, some fairly um, f fairly obvious truisms from uh, a three thousand year old Chinese gentleman. Um, uh, which you know, I've got a lot of time for Klaus, so it's not so much for Sun Tzu, but um, Reiswitz could uh, could teach them a thing or two. Yeah, absolutely. And since you mentioned that, um, hmm. I've been in contact hmm. with uh, the chief of. I probably shouldn't give too much away, but he's basically he's a high yeah. muckety muck at our at our command and general staff college, and uh, he says exactly what you're talking mm. about. He he loves running the students through Kriegspiel, and mm. yeah, yeah, he says yeah. they like to simplify it yeah. by basically mm, chucking yeah. the rules out the window, and just and just putting yeah. putting the students in a dense mm. fog of war situation. Yeah. yeah with severe time restrictions and that's and it, you can just see how people react to that and it really really replicates you know you can you can change a little bit here and there as far as the situation that people are in and really get some some wildly different reactions out of people yeah, yeah. a good a good Kriegspiel a good Kriegspiel will, will mm -hmm. raise questions mm. Uh, and if you want to understand something and learn how you do things differently, that's yeah. a fantastic yeah. route to I, I've, down. I've been involved with the British Army developing their new um, approach to wargaming, and um, it's uh, it's very interesting how uh, they seem to be reacting in terms of getting wargaming back on the agenda within within the armed forces in the UK yes. because it it is an opportunity to um, to gain experience without you know without the without the bullets flying but nevertheless the stresses are replicated yeah absolutely there's a actually the US Army is doing that um, they've got a push for a war game that they've developed at uh, CGSC uh, Command and General Staff mm. College and they're mm. they're gonna start working on pushing that out to uh, I think maybe well division brigade and maybe even battalion level and yeah, that's very sounds very similar it sounds like it sounds like there's and it's unsurprising yeah. to think that there, there there aren't people talking across the atlantic because it sounds like a direct replication <laughs> yeah. yeah and um mm. there's an article on army.mil mm. recently about that and I'll I'll have that in the show notes for sure so folks can uh, I'd be really interested that. to read that I can I can try and find the British Army one and supply you with that as well because they produce something which is online too, which uh, might be of interest. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Army.mil is an interesting source of information yeah, and yeah, reference absolutely. and listening, actually. Uh, now, too. with mm. our current time, where we are uh, mm. in the year, uh, you do have a product that's going to be hitting the at least the electronic bookshelves of gamers around the world in about two weeks, well, about three weeks at this point. And I think we need to start talking about that for a little bit, if that's all right with you. And for mm -hmm. those that aren't in the know, what we're talking about yeah. is what a tanker 
the latest rules mm. from Two Fat Lardies, which puts you in the commander's cupola, and you're gonna be chugging along in your in your uh, PZ38T, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> whatever could be, yeah, and could be, could uh, be. coming up yeah. against who? No, you know. You're going to be coming up against who knows what. So, gents, if you don't mind, a few words about uh, about what a tanker. What was, what inspired you to create a tank commander level game? Um, I, I guess I'll answer this one because what a tanker kind of sprung out of uh, my Christmas mm -hmm. break during 2016, um, when uh, I found Christmas is quite a productive time in terms of getting away from the real world and thinking about other things and watching telly and watching war films and that kind of stuff um, and I think I must have watched some war films over that period um, and just thinking about some simple game mechanisms as Richard says making notes in a in a scrapbook about ideas that might work and this idea came about dice activation to run a tank game um, and so we took that forward really really very quickly as a as a, from an idea to a kind of prototype because really the, 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 the mechanism at the heart of what a tanker is so simple as I said earlier it's probably the simplest of all mechanisms we've produced so far uh, we ran that out very quickly um, from Christmas 2016 we took it to the Panath uh, District Wargame Show the Crusade Show which was in January 2017 and played the prototype mm -hmm. as a participation game for people at that show um you know a little bit i guess because it was so soon after christmas and uh you know we thought well we're going to we're going to drive the two hours down to cardiff what will we do will we take chain of command uh, I, I thought we just kind of said well actually let's take the tanks and see how that goes um so we took some tanks down literally threw half a dozen tanks in a box put a bit of terrain on a table played these games during the course of the day with people at cardiff um, and got a really, really good response. The people really enjoyed playing the game. We had a great laugh. Um, we had a war game celebrity join us in the form of the <laughs> Welsh wizard uh, Mike Hobbs, who came along, and and, uh, and even the editor of War Game Soldier and Strategy managed to drive his tank into a building and promptly <laughs> fall into the cellar. But he didn't know was there. Um, so, that, that would be... <laughs> so uh, and, and which is all within the rules. We did. We didn't even have to stitch him with, up with that one on purpose. He just that just happened on its own. And, uh, and so and we had great fun. And the, actually, what was really superb about that also um, was that we had. Uh, you know, fathers and sons were coming up uh, and playing games together, uh, and the youngsters were really enjoying it. It was obvious that they picked this mm. up really quickly. They had the idea of what a tank was about. They knew what that they knew what in intuitively knew what they wanted in the tank that they were choosing. You know, did I want heavy armor or did I want a big powerful gun? Did I want to be fast? Did I want to have a low profile? They instinctively knew what kind of tank they wanted to go for, and we played this game throughout the day and really went away from there thinking you know what, this is really something that we can uh, run with. This could be a really good, fun game and people mm -hmm. will enjoy playing it. I think, I think that comes back to the point we were making earlier about listening to other people. You know, when you've got an idea, what's the point in working on it in, in your secret laboratory for six months and then and then revealing yeah. it to the world and people go, cool, that's awful. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so we just thought, right, yeah. well, we played it a few times here at Lard Island and then we went, right, well, let's take it out and see what people think because it's quite different it's quite different to what we've done in the past. Well, we thought it was. We thought, hey, this is a great fun game, a bit like sort of wacky races mm. with tanks. Um, but then we realized 
that it it wasn't that it actually there was still that simulation element in there because there's you know you've got five four five six eight whatever guys depending on your tank but let's say five guys in a tin box which is very very noisy with the engine going and it's very very scary because somebody could blow you up any minute and your Sherman is well known for catching fire and so on and so forth and it's trying to reflect not just the tank commander but also the way the whole crew of, are operating together as a team um, and all of a sudden you, you, you're playing a game and you see somebody desperately going reverse 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 because they're, they've gone right fire fire at that tank and the gunner's gone I'm, I can't see the tank I can't see it sir yeah. and you're getting the real stresses of combat yeah. but it's it's um, we thought well you know maybe this is maybe this is just too fun and not historical enough but when we took so we decided to take it out and unveil it and and everybody said that was just really fantastic but and everybody agreed that whilst it was great fun it was all it also had that real historical feel so we we were kind of reassured by that because we we didn't want it to be a parody of tank warfare right. but we did want it to we did want it to yeah. um uh we did want it to be enjoyable and a lot of people have said things like have you got rules for radio net in there you know with because you the, the premise is that you've probably got three four five tanks on the allied side three four five tanks on the axis side um and we did look at rules for radio net and then we decided you know what if the gamers are just having a conversation together mm -hmm. as they play the game that's probably a better representation right. of the radio net than if we wrote any compli complicated rules for it because it would take people's attention away from what the tanks were doing um, and how the tanks were coordinating together because if I say to you you know help that guy's got a bead on me um, I'm putting I'm putting hot tracer on it to mark him out as a target for you. Can you help me? Right. You you know we're we're probably going to be working together as a team anyway on the tabletop. So we decided don't overcomplicate it by by introducing these rules for radio nets. Just allow the gamers' own conversations to do that, and then you can really focus on what's going on inside that tank. And I think we reached a point quite early in the playtesting where we we had the fun day at Cardiff where we played. You know, it was it was a fun activity, and we thought, well, we've got a we've got a, a, a uh, yeah, this is going to be a fun game to play. Where's the historical relevance to it? And then we played a game where we put um, I remember this quite strongly from playtesting. We put uh, one Tiger tank on the table versus three British uh, Cromwell tanks. They were so you know sort of late 1944 scenario type thing. And what we watched in that playtest was um, British tankers going through a learning cycle of, of what the hell did you yeah, do? Just scared to death. They were absolutely scared and, and, to death. Uh, we had, yeah, and we had <laughs> absolutely scared to death because, of course, the idea is well, actually, you know, we need to get around the sides of this guy uh, and try and take him out. Okay, that's fine. Um, who's going to be the one who stays, you know, who's going to draw his fire? Well, funnily enough, there's no volunteers for that. Uh, and it was very interesting to see the psychology, the, the discussion that the players had as they worked out how they were going to tackle uh, this this uh, this monster mm. that they found themselves faced with. And also interesting to see the way that, that mm. it affected the German player and the way that the German player played his game as well in that situation. So we went from having a game that we knew was good fun mm -hmm. to having something that we thought, hang on a minute, if you play this with a historical hat on, 
you can really uh, you can really understand mm. a little bit more about mm. what what tank warfare was about. Yeah, absolutely. That that sounds really spectacular. Um, backing up just a second, you mentioned you know just the conversation amongst the uh, players as a good enough representation of the radio net. So. Does that mean for the Soviet players you're including semaphore flags? <laughs> yeah. yeah, optional. Like Seventeen pages of rules for them. We did. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no. And they have to learn to speak Russian as well. Yeah, no, oh, no. no. We we keep the idea. Keep it simple, and let the players replicate that themselves. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's very much about controlling your crew, and the, you know the psychology is interesting. I mean, you know, Nick Nick mentioned that Tiger Tank situation, and the the, mm-hmm. the three British players are going, we can't win, we can't win, we can't win, and in the end, just through by focusing and and plowing shell after shell into the Tiger, they gradually, you know, a few bits got knocked off. The Tiger's performance, you know, weakens. And then it was the the Tigers' crew that, in the end, bailed out. They didn't blow it up. They bailed out and they and they ran off because they didn't like the fact that their their, their tank was a lot slower. It had suffered uh, damage, which slowed it down. Its its uh, optics were damaged for firing, so it wasn't as accurate as it had been. And they just got to the point where constant round after round slamming into the tank meant that the crew decided that that they'd had enough rather than the tank being out of action. Uh, but the British. Yeah. The British had spent three quarters of the game going, we can't win, we can't win, and then they did. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it's quite an interesting yeah. psychological journey for both sides, I think. Yeah. But they did lose one of their yeah, three yeah, on the way. Yeah. Mm. But yeah. only one. But that was interesting, only one. Yeah. So, but there we go. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, in terms yeah. of I mean, the game... Uh, I suppose I should say a little bit about how it works. I mean, it's sure. it's, it's a game of tank combat. It's, um, as Richard said, you could either one player can command one tank, and that's the kind of uh, participation demonstration game angle, um, or you can play it with one player controlling two or three tanks on a team. Uh, the rules include some basic scenarios to get you started, which are very, very simple, um, because this is really... We're not interested in anything else on the battlefield other than the tanks and the terrain that they're fighting in. So we don't sure. model in infantry, we don't model in anti-tank guns uh, in, 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 in this. We're actually interested in tank-on-tank action uh, on the basis that, actually, if you want a war game that's got tanks and infantry and... Um, and AT guns, well, we point you towards chain of command. You know, this is a different type of game. Right. So um, the idea is that I command, I command my tank. Let's assume I'm commanding one tank. Um, I have a hand of dice. Each tank, um, and tanks exist at one of seven different levels. So, for instance, uh, a level, uh, a level one tank might be a Panzer, uh, Panzer II, whereas a level seven tank would be a, a King Tiger. So we've got, we've got sort of levels of tanks. Um, in 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 there. So a Sherman, for instance, is a level four tank, I think. Um, in that, so I command my tank. I have a hand of activation dice, which is in water tanker is six dice, uh, and I roll my dice, and that enables me to do stuff and activate my tank. Um, and we activate in a sequence. So at the beginning of the turn, all players would roll roll for initiative, and that would decide the playing sequence for that turn. And then each tank activates in sequence uh, and then I roll my handful of dice and I can activate my dice in whatever sequence I want. So um, shall I roll through what the dice allow you to do quickly? 
sure. would be a sensible thing to do probably. Sure. So if I roll a one, then I can drive. Okay, so any I roll a handful of six dice. If I roll uh, two ones, then that would mean that I'll be able to have two goes of driving my tank, and each and each one enables me to move either forwards or backwards uh, a set number of dice, and we do distance moved by dice. So any one in my command dice would enable me to drive, and I'd roll two d6 and I'd go forward that many inches, and I can also rotate my turret or turn uh, on a one as well. If I roll a 2, then a 2 enables me to acquire the target. So we know as wargamers that we can always spot the other tank on the other side of the table because we know where it is and we can see it, there it is behind the trees. Um, but actually, a 2 in the game, is, we call it target acquisition because it's about organising your team within the tank to be focused mm -hmm. on this particular enemy. So you may be faced with three or four tanks. You can only ever acquire one of them as a target. And what that means is your commander has said, uh, you know, Panzer IV, 10 o'clock, uh, 700 yards. So your whole team is now working against that one tank. So you can use your twos to acquire the target. And acquiring a target uh, depends on the terrain that the target is in. So if, you're, if your target is driving across um, you know, you're on a hill and he's driving across the desert in front of you, you can probably acquire him quite easily. Whereas if you're in a, a, a bocage of Normandy, then actually acquiring the target will be difficult because there's more intervening terrain. Right. So where there's more terrain, I would need more twos to acquire you. Once I've acquired you with my twos, I then have a three. So if I roll a three, I can aim. So this mm. is the gunner getting the crosshairs um, on the target and being ready to shoot. And then if I have a four, I can shoot, and I can fire my gun at you, and we do uh, obviously have different tanks have different strike values, so I would roll, for a bigger tank with a bigger gun, I'd roll more strike dice, and for a bigger tank with bigger armour, you'd roll more defence dice, um, you know, to see if I penetrate you or not. If I penetrate you, uh, and, and score a hit on you, then possibly... Uh, let's let's assume that say two outcomes are possible. There's more than two, but let's just take two. Um, one is one is that the shell bounces off completely, and the other is that actually I do some damage to you. And if I do some damage to you, then that damage is either going to be temporary or permanent. So mm -hmm. if I do temporary damage on you, what happens is you will temporarily lose one of your command dice. So you might start mm. with six but you get a hit on, I, I hit you, I take off two dice due to temporary damage, they go into your damage dice area, uh, which we which we are not allowed to call the sin bin, but we <laughs> seem to be using the sin bin as the word that goes with it. We put those two dice in the sin bin. Um, because they're temporary damage, you might be able to get them back in your turn, but we'll come on to that in a minute. So for the moment, you're down by two dice. If I do permanent damage to you, you lose that dice, but not to temporary damage, but you lose it forever. You will, be, you will constantly, you will not get that dice back ever because we've done some damage to your tank. And it could be that we've also done damage such as uh, damage your running gear or damage your optics for your main gun. So by repeatedly firing at you and repeatedly hitting you, I will reduce your, your tank to zero dice. And as soon as your tank is reduced to zero dice, it's mm. game over. Yeah. Now I can reduce you to zero dice slowly. Uh, and um, one at a time, and that will mean that if you drop to zero dice one at a time very slowly, and you've got some dice in temporary damage and some dice in permanent damage, your crew will bail out and they will leg it off the battlefield. Mm -hmm. Alternatively, I could I could get a catastrophic hit on you, and um, uh, and that would mean that your tank blows up. Now that's important in terms of the of the campaign 
career ladder right. uh, that we've got in the rules as well. But that's so. That's so. My first dice is to drive. My second dice is to acquire a target. The third dice allows me to aim. If I roll a four, it allows me to shoot. And then I need a five if I'm going to reload. So mm. that allows me to reload my main gun. Some tanks have a characteristic of rapid fire, um, so they don't have to worry so much about reloading, although they do still need to. But um, I can then reload, and once I've reloaded, I can then shoot again. So if I fire at you and bounce off, I can. if I have a five and another four, I can reload and shoot again. So that's the first five dice, fairly straightforward. And then the sixth dice is what we call the wild dice, and that enables me, if I roll a six, I can do a number of things with it. The first thing I can do with the six is that I can change it to any of the other dice. So if I want to turn my six into a one so that I can drive, then I can do that. Or if uh, if I want to reload, I can do it with that. And that's actually where the decision making starts to get quite interesting because I think, well, what do I do? Do I take a chance and, and move, move closer, or do I want to make sure that I reload? So um, if I roll a handful of sixes, that can really give me some good options as to what I wish to do. The other things I can do with a six is, is really there's two other main things. The first thing is I can say I can use my six to take a damaged dice out of my shock out of my sin bin. So if I've lost a dice to temporary damage, I can spend one of my sixes to get that back. So that in my next activation, I can I can roll with that dice. Um, and then the other thing I can do with it is actually I can say you know what I'm not going to use it in this activation. I'm going to hold that six back, and that will give me a plus one in the initiative roll next time round, mm -hmm. so that I can be more likely to activate in front of you. And I know I've rattled through that really quite quickly, but actually it's a very, very simple mechanism yeah. uh, where people very, very quickly learn what they can do with their six dice. And uh, you get some interesting decision points. And because the sequence in which you do choose to activate your dice is entirely up to you, you can, uh, you can aim, shoot, and then you know, reverse back round the corner so nobody can shoot you, or you can reverse, or you can drive forward. The sequence is entirely up to you, which makes it really quite flexible, and people can play it the way that they wish to. The, um, can I just jump in there and say that what yeah, are you, you, you going to think of your uh, temporary damage, the loss of temporary loss of dice, as is um, is 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 a morale effect on the crew. You know, the, the right. shock effect yeah. on the crew. It, it's reflecting the fact you started with six dice. Nick's done a couple of uh, taken a couple of dice off. In other words, the, he's had a round or two hit your tank, and um, whilst it hasn't penetrated, you know you get spalling off the crew. Uh, you know, are, uh, the, the crew are becoming scared. They're less efficient. They're less effective. So you're only rolling those those four command dice. If you're using your one of your sixes to gain those dice back out of that uh, temporary um, temporary. Uh, limbo state of limbo so to speak that's representing you actually focusing on rallying your crew rather right. than trying to just fight on regardless and go hey right. i'm going to use that six to slam another round in the breach but rather than do that i might just reverse off take a bit of time to rally up my men and get them back make sure everybody's all right um and then get them back in the fight again so it's it's very much a case of having permanent damage which is the physical damage and having temporary damage which is the psychological damage so that's what we were talking about earlier those two aspects of combat things that are real but things that feel real <laughs> yeah absolutely that it sounds really interesting and i'm really int i really want to come to grips with these rules because it sounds like yeah you can have a good afternoon of fun mm. with it just kind of knocking around and pitting mm. a couple of 
different t tanks against each other, but at the same time, you could also apply that to a historical scenario. And oh, yeah. yes, yeah. and yes, we yeah. know doctrinally that infantry mm. are supposed to support tanks and vice mm. versa. But there are plenty of sure. occasions when yeah. tanks yeah. didn't have any choice except we are the only unit here. We have to go attack these other these other tanks. Yeah. And yeah, and, and and I think the other thing that we should say about the rules is that different types of tanks can have different characteristics. Yeah. Mm. So while you have the basic hand of six dice. Um, the type of tank you've got may have an advantage in one area than another. So, for instance, if I'm in a, if I'm in a fast tank, mm -hmm. for instance, uh, then I'm actually allowed. I can turn any dice into a drive dice. Ah. So it means that I'm more likely to be able to move. Mm -hmm. If I'm a tank destroyer, however, um, I might not be fast. But if I'm a tank destroyer, um, because of my whole purpose and way of being is around drawing a very good bead on you and, and then nailing you, I can turn any dice into an aim dice. Mm. So you start to get tanks being used in the, in the way that mm. they were created to be used. Um, so guys so guys with Stugs, for yeah. instance, tend to stay still, get themselves in a good position uh, with a nice line of fire, and then you know, wait for the wait for the enemy to come into their line of sight, and then ping them. The Stug's a great um, example because the Stug, really the Stug is a tank destroyer, so it, it's it can always turn something into an aim dice. And if you've got two aim dices, that that doesn't mean you're you're aim. Well, it does mean you're aiming twice. You're not only have you aimed, but you're also getting a plus one to hit. So your your mm. dice roll to hit is enhanced, but you're also low profile, which means that if if somebody is trying to acquire you as a target, they need two extra acquire dice. So if you're behind a hedge or a thick sort of bit of bocage, they might need four twos to acquire you. So you're a really really you're a killer. You know you're the the silent killer hunting about the battlefield. Nobody's you know difficult to acquire you as a target. Now in that situation, you know six dice, you're unlikely to roll four twos. But that's where your opponent is hoping to roll sixes so he can convert them into right right. It can convert them into twos and and get to spot you, or he's got to manoeuvre to get a better bead on you. But uh, yeah, so so if you if. If you use your tank uh, historically accurately, you know, in the way that it would have been used on the battlefield, then you're more likely to succeed. Yeah. Obviously, you could take a Stug and charge it across the field and, you yeah. know, uh, and, and use it in that way, but it would, you would not be using it to its advantage. Right. Well, that makes me very happy to hear because at this moment, my main opponent, my brother Chris, who's been on the podcast before, um, mm. What he has for World War Two is Americans mm -hmm. in 15 millimeter, yep. and I have Germans in 15 millimeter. He has a bunch of Shermans, yep. and I have a nice little handful of Stugs. <laughs> so. Okay, okay. Well, tell him, tell him to get some more. <laughs> <Yeah. shit. laughs> and I think one more key important part of the mechanism is that, uh, and th actually this is really central to the whole thing, is you've not only got that what happens in game but you've also got the campaign system yeah. and that yes. is based around creating a career for your tank crew as you mm -hmm. get a kill as you get kills it, let's say you get two kills in your first game when you go into the next game you'll have two cards dealt to you which represent an enhanced tactical ability. Now they're they're they're, yeah. they're fire and forget cards. You use them once in a game, and then they're used. But that's fine because in the next game you've still got your two kill rings. You'll get another two cards. Now they're little yeah. cards that that just allow you little tactical advantages. So the first time that opponent spots you, 
maybe you need he needs an even more acquired ices maybe he needs an additional acquired ice because you camouflage your vehicle because you've got a bit clever maybe mm -hmm. um, maybe it's going to give you an ability to turn an ordinary uh, hit a, a temporary hit into a permanent hit because your gunner's getting a bit better at his job and he's you know he's he's realized that if you hit a sherman at a certain point in their armor that's a weak point um, so you get these cards and then once you get five kills you become an ace in that particular tank and once you're an ace you can change any dice into any, any one dice into anything in, in a phase Ooh. so you become even better <laughs> uh, but of course you then get a choice do you stay as an ace in your Panzer IV let's say or do you take the option to be promoted into a better tank maybe a panther, I don't know, or maybe a Yag Panzer IV, that low-profile killer. Now, uh, if you do so, well, you've got to start the learning process again because you've got a new vehicle. So think Wittmann earning his, earning his stripes in a Stug, learning how to mm -hmm. operate, and then getting promoted to a Tiger. That's exactly the type of career structure we're looking to present gamers right. with. And they get a choice when they want to take the upgrade or whether they want to take the upgrade or whether they want to stay as an ace. But the, the little advantages that they get are incremental. It's never enough to allow them to be, you know, to, it's not a get out of jail free card. So uh, right. the, you and your rookie Sherman crew can stroll up on the table and if my ace is busy firing at your pal, well, you can get round the flank and, and dispatch me and that's the end of my ace career. I have to start again as a lowly yeah. tank crew, uh, albeit in, in whatever vehicle I've got worked my way up to. So that, that career path is a really fun part of um, not only enhancing your ability because we're, we're reflecting the expertise and skills that one gains with um, you know, with with as a veteran, if you like, um, but it also provides you know a really fun gaming experience that you can have a great. Big, you could go down to your local friendly gaming store and say, "Hey, let's have a day of what a tanker," and you've got twelve guys there, and you all start with your, your tank each, and you play three, four, five, six games, and at the end of the end of the day, who has become an ace? Who's who's progressed the furthest? Is is all mm -hmm. part of the fun? So you know that guy can win the. Uh, you know, I'm an absolute tanker um, uh, trophy or whatever you want to call it. Right. Yeah, and and the career ladder, the the paths are very important in the way uh, that the game works. So we've got the um, uh, the career ladders in there for all the main warring countries. If you like, during the Second World War, we've got Germany, Great Britain, USA, uh, Soviet Union, France, Italy. Um, have I Japan. missed one? Great Britain, Japan. Even if you want to fight Japanese tanks uh, versus Shermans in the Pacific, you can. And good luck to you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, if, if uh, so, for, but if you're fighting U.S. tanks, say in uh, you know late war, then your entry level tank might be a 75 millimeter Sherman, or you might, or you might choose uh, to go actually on a fast tank. So I might go with a Chaffee. And then once you reach a status, then you can upgrade to the next tank up. So, for instance, from the Sherman 75, you might go to the, to the Easy 8. Mm. Might be your next mm. tank up. Once you've aced in the Sherman, you go to the Easy 8. Once you've gone to the Easy 8, you might be got to the, to the Jumbo Sherman. And then beyond the Jumbo Sherman, you can go to the Pershing. 
and you can expect as you go up through the career ladder to be fighting tanks that are a similar level to you mm. which is why also some guys have been saying to us you know what I think this might work if you you know competitive gamers uh, might mm. find this an attractive way to um, to run some competitions based on uh, you know the levels that are in the rules, which is really interesting. Not some, yeah, not idea. something you've really been involved. And not one in, that we yeah. kind of factored in, yeah. Yeah, so, um, so not necessarily, not necessarily an intentional result, but mm. definitely, some definitely something that's come about, and possibly a uh, a, a definite distinction from your other Lardy games. Yeah, I mean, I, I in in the past, well, the past few days since the rules went on advanced order I've been contacted by three game stores saying hey this sounds like we could do we could run a table and um, you know people could fight their actions and then you know get their promotions and and have you thought about keeping a central database of you know players status and so, well no, I haven't thought about it at all actually but, <laughs> but yeah. if you guys are interested in doing that then I'll happily act as the sort of hub of that network and um, upgrade, you know, Fred Bloggs has got another two kills this weekend and go, wow, Fred, you actually could now be promoted to whatever. But I mean, that really depends on um, each store would have to decide where it wanted to start because the what we've done is present the career ladders so you could decide you wanted mm -hmm. to start in 1940. Um, with you know French against Germans or British against Germans, and then potentially fight all your way through the whole war to 1945. But you might decide you want to jump in in 1943, and you know maybe begin sure. your career as an American tanker on Sicily or in Tunisia, and then just fight for the next from there. Um, and where you join the ladder, where you, what part of the war you decide you want to come in at. And that will determine what your what choice of tanks you have available to you as a starting point, and then the way the career ladder will go from there. And because we've got the, the sort of points system in there, I guess you know you said about the very opening of this piece, Jay. You said about your Panzer, you know Panzer thirty eight T. Well, what would you want to fight that against? You wouldn't want to roll that out against. Uh, you know, uh, something like a, an Easy 8 Sherman, that might be a bit of a mismatch, mm -hmm. but you could fight it against some uh, sort of Russian Lend-Lease Valentines, mm -hmm. might be quite an interesting action to fight out. So you can use the rules to match your tanks against mm -hmm. each other. At the end of the day, you know, if, if you and a mate have got two tanks and you want a, uh, a quick game to, you've got half an hour, mm -hmm. just whack the two tanks on the table and play the game, it's, it's, it's really that simple we are very confident that, that once people try this game they will pick up the mechanisms in 10 minutes mm. and then after that you can play it whenever you wish to as a gap filler or as a whole day's entertainment right now as we record on sunday march 25th the pre-order is still up mm. now i'm currently planning for the episode to actually come out after the pdf is released mm. but for folks that don't for folks that didn't get in on the pre-order, mm -hmm. what is in the book and token sets? Okay. And also, most importantly, what is what is the universal tanker tool? <laughs> it's called a hexagon. Um, <laughs> the, the universal tanker tool, well, <laughs> the unit, we, we, um, we're having them made up, we're having the tokens made up at the moment, and the, uh, the company who are doing it sent us a set. And the universal tanker tool is a beautiful hexagon that you can you can use, and depending how you rotate it, it shows you your 180 degree visibility arc if you are unbuttoned as a tank commander. Mm -hmm. It shows you your 60 degree arc if you are buttoned. 
it shows you how you can turn how your gun it, it will indicate if you put the point of a hexagon if that makes sense in line with the gun it will give you a 60 degree arc either side so you can so basically this hexagon becomes a multi-purpose tool that gives you all the angles that you need for uh, to play the game i'd love to show you a picture of it but my dog ate the only one <laughs> they, <laughs> they sent us a sample through and freddie the lard island head of security ate it and i have no intention of trying to find it again <laughs> so so freddie is right. freddie is your watchdog then? he is yeah yeah he doesn't yeah. watch very we, much to be honest with you but yeah he'll <laughs> He'll watch you take everything out of the joint. Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, so but no, it's a it's a nice big it's a nice big see-through um, plastic hexagon which you can pop on your turret whether you're using 15 mil tanks or 28 mil tanks, and it just allows you to line up all the angles that you need. And then on top of that, you've got uh, six sets of tokens. Um, what you do when you play the game is you you uh, you have a dashboard. Um, which you can, uh, which is in the rules, so you can just copy that and print it out, fill in your tank details, what its armor factor is, what its strike is. We're, these are going to be available for download as well. And um, mm -hmm. some some people are talking about making them up in MDF, so you've got a permanent thing. But anyway, you you you're going to track whether your commander is unbuttoned or buttoned up. You're going to track whether you've acquired a target, whether you are aimed at a target, and whether you're loaded or unloaded. So we've got four, the six sets of tokens. Uh, to cover that off on these dashboards, um, and the idea, of course, is that if you and you and a pal are, are playing together and you, you, you're going to buy a set each, so you've got enough for twelve tanks, which, quite frankly, is going to be enough for anything but the most lunatic-sized game. Um, yeah. So uh, that's um, that's what's in there. Uh, the rule set is uh, uh, going to contain not just the rules, but also the all the army, all the all the. Uh, lists the armory tables, the, the tanker tables, um, which tell you, you know, what the stats are for all the vehicles. Um, and then when the PDF, at the moment, you're going to get the hard copy and the free PDF as part of the advanced hard copy order. When uh, the rules are released, we're also going to release the PDF bundle, which is going to allow people to buy the PDF of the rules and also the um, uh, the the token set as well. Uh, one of the things that we have been asked for already is people to what we what we really wanted to do was to make this a cheap game because fr frankly right. most people have got tanks a bit like you and your brother you've got the tanks you're not going to have to go out and buy it so we thought what what we'll do is we'll make this a cheap game the rule set uh, 20 quid the, the tokens at the moment they're they're four pound but uh, as an introductory offer we're actually not making any money on them so it's going to go up to about 20 28 pound or 26 if you buy a bundle I think um, but it so the idea was to keep it cheap and cheerful no but we're not going to produce any supplements that you have to buy we are going to produce some lists for things like armored cars we're going to produce a list of tanks for countries that we haven't listed so if you want to do Poland or you want to do um, 1939 Germans or you want to do the Slovak fast division or the the Vatican City Armored Brigade, or whatever it is, we we will provide <laughs> lists for them, free to download. So it's the type of thing you can get into, and the costs are minimal. Um, but people have been saying to us, why don't you produce a set of card decks? Um, so rather than us, you know, printing out our own ones and just dealing them out, we can have them ready made. And that's something that already we're we're looking at. If if that's what people want, we will respond to that and and make them. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, uh, you know, our, our thought was keep keep it cheap, so it's it's just a nice game you can buy into, 
Um, it's the type of game that if you go down to your local gaming store and you know you've turned up with your Flames of War army and your mates turned up with his bolt action army, you go, oh no, this isn't going to work. You can just go, hey, let's let's just throw some tanks on the table and we can play this instead. So it's a, it's a great one to have in the cupboard, uh, or or it's equally great to um, to, to have a great big. Um, a big club day or a, a fabulous convention game. You know, you, we talked about Historicon yeah. earlier. You go to Historicon, and uh, people always want big games at American conventions, which we Brits kind of think, oh, well, you know, if a game is designed for two people, the ideal number of people to play it is two people. But you, you guys over the, over the, there, big is good. And you think if a game is designed for two people, it would be even better with 20. <laughs> and this is the type of game <laughs> which kind of hits the button for that American sort of psyche of uh, big yeah. and brash. So you could really have a huge game of this and, and have great fun at a convention. So uh, yeah, it's uh, yeah, that's that's definitely that's mm. definitely something we're planning mm. on. Uh, when I when I made the order, I mm. uh, for when I made the pre-order mm. for my own set, I put out on the Facebook group for uh, the folks who come to my annual wargaming weekend oh yeah yeah i've heard all about i'm a, I'm a regular listener i know all I'm, i've been stalking you for years with these podcasts <laughs> <laughs> so so i put the warning order out that uh both i and my brother had ordered it so we're going to have enough stuff for six tanks oh, brilliant. and then based solely right. on my recommendation right. another mm. one of our friends bought it so we're going to have enough stuff for 18 tanks whether Ooh. or not whether or not we get 18 on the okay. table yeah. i don't know yet but well that's the great thing well, yeah. that's yeah. the great thing about 15 mil you're buying yourself a lot more space aren't you yeah 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 absolutely and yeah we're definitely going to be i was also going to say about the way you play the game there which is the uh there's a scenario version we have in the rules which we call king of the ring Mm. so you can uh play against each other and it's almost like the winner stays on so i blow up your tank if there's four of us playing uh i stay on the table as long as i can Mm. stay alive and other tanks can come Mm. and go so if you're killed you can then dice to come see if you come on in the next turn or the turn after so you can play with multiple players uh and to see who can who can stay on who can survive the longest yeah so multiple tanks you you, having loads of tanks is is not Mm. a problem it's a it's a Mm. real bonus for you and in 15 mil as richard says uh, it's a wonderful scale to do it in because it just looks Mm. nice on the table the distances look Mm. right yeah yeah, you guys, you guys, I presume, play 28 to uh, match your chain of command stuff? Uh, well, yes, but also um, 15 Thanks. as well. I mean, we've done we've done some big Russian front games. I've got some rather nice um, winter, uh, winter painted up vehicles for sort of uh, more about uh, early 1943. And um, mm-hmm. we've done, uh, no, 1944, I did them really for Chakassi Pocket originally. And um, we yep. we played some great games with there, just a white a white sort of sheet, and uh, some hills underneath, and some nice clumps of, of fir tree, yeah, fir trees with with snow on them. Maybe the odd building, you know, the odd Russian peasant hut with some heavily laden mm-hmm. with snow, and that just looks fantastic on the table. It's obviously a lot easier to acquire an enemy target there than it is in yeah, Nor- yeah. Normandy, and that kind of yeah. that, but that's fun, and that changes the game slightly. Equally. 15 mil in a desert setting with um, you know a few um, rocky areas and a few uh, maybe an oasis uh, and some sand dunes to give a little bit of variety so you can go hull down sure sure that could look absolutely fabulous in even 10 mil look great yeah absolutely um, 
Now, one thing that I've noticed is since I am a, a 15 mil guy, mm. I took a look at the Plastic Soldier Company kits, oh, nice. and a number of them, and I put a photo up on the Facebook page and on Twitter. A number of them have mm, multiple sorry, options yeah. on the same, on, you know, on the single sprue. Yeah. So a single sprue gets you a tank, yeah. and you know, if you're smart with some magnets, maybe six tanks. Yeah. You know, for, you know, for uh, about five bucks. So, mm. yeah, fifteen's where it's at. And, uh, well, you're, you're selling it to I, me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, uh, well, you know, the PSC toys are certainly lovely for that, and mm. I think that it is, it is a great scale to do it. And you wouldn't need to make any changes to the rules. You play the rules straight out of the book, whether you're playing 28 or 15. If you go into a much yeah. smaller scale, you'll probably want to use centimetres instead of mm. inches when it comes to moving. Uh, but ranges in terms of firing are almost... Uh, almost meaningless in this game because we're talking about tanks that can shoot you know main armament a long distance yeah. and we're only looking at main armament in mm. these in these rules right right so um you know it it, it would really uh, fit nicely so yeah you could have lots of fun with 15 mil tanks and of course there are this is this is where you know, the rule designers always lose out because actually um we only sell one set of rules where you would go out and buy 400 tanks. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, there's the, the models that are available are fantastic. There's such, such wonderful ranges available. And uh, I would say, yeah, go and fill your boots. If, if the stats don't exist in the existing rules, I mean, God knows how many tanks we've got in there already. Um, but uh, we've probably got 12 or 16 mm. pages of, of national tank characteristics nice. at the back. Um, but uh, there'll always be ones that we don't have. We've done the main tanks, uh, but there'll always be weird variants that uh, people want to play. Uh, and I think there's simple enough to work out your own stuff. Oh, yeah, well, we can always have we're, we're going to provide what we're going to call a tankulator, um, in the same mm -hmm. way as we provide the cocculator and the sharpulator for working out your point systems. And actually, it's really easy. Sure. But, I mean, I've been looking at things. You know, just this morning I was thinking, oh, wouldn't it be nice to do the Slovak fast division or the Romanians with their R35s up at, uh, heading towards Odessa, you know, coming up against T26s and BT3s or BT5s, and you just think, wow, that uh, I could really, I could all I'd need to do was buy three uh, tanks aside, and in, and as you say, with the plastic soldier company, if you if you potentially got variants on the uh, different variants on, let's say, the turret. You could um, you could create your own you know here, here's the tank that I start with but also by changing the turret maybe here's the one that I is the next one that I get promoted up to yeah. right absolutely just looking at what's available already mm. and my mind's going and I'm I'm really I'm really looking forward to this and I'm really excited for the for the potential especially in a setting. Like I have, where you know these are guys you know that I play with at, at Jay's July Jamboree. Mm. These are guys that are, you know, folks that I've played games mm. with for a long time, and I only get to see them once a year. Mm. And I don't want to spend time mucking about with. Well, here's a 30-minute rules brief. Oh no, yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, I I yeah, want yeah, I want to yeah. put you know give them a warning order. Mm. Hey, we're gonna be playing a World War II tank game, you know. Br you know, run what you brung, and we're gonna get knocking on it at about six p.m. on mm. Saturday night, and we're gonna go all night with mm. it and just have a blast. Yeah. And sounds great. Mm. Sounds a great way to use it. And uh, really looking forward to it. Um, really, 
And the thing is, it, it gets the creative juices going because, you know, you start looking at the Plastic Soldier kits, Plastic Soldier Company kits, for example, and, mm. okay, where am I going to put the magnets, you know? And, <laughs> yeah, and it's one of those things where I want to order stuff, but I <laughs> not yet because I need to see what's in the book before I order anything. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, it won't be long. But, uh, uh, if you pre-ordered, you'll get, so, you get the PDF on release date, which is the 9th of... Whatever month that is, April. April. <laughs> so we're only April. we're only a couple of weeks away, aren't we? I think. Yeah, couple of weeks yeah. away. So, so you're really looking forward. You'll to get that. that. And, and what I normally do, to be honest, is I normally get the uh, the overseas orders, the long distance overseas orders, and you're, it's a long swim to your place, so you count as long distance. Um, I get them out first, so yours will probably be heading out in the post, hopefully on. Uh, uh, that, that previous weekend, uh, or maybe even the Friday, depending when the delivery of the rules arrived. Um, but uh, yeah, mm -hmm. it shouldn't be long to wait. We try and uh, we try and make sure people get them pretty rapidly. Now, mm. speaking yeah, of, yeah. and it's also worth saying we'll be taking the rules and dem demonstrating the games yeah. at various shows sure. uh, yeah. this this year. We haven't quite decided. We'll be playing it at Salute, we think, uh, in April. And I'm actually sure. hoping to get and, to Historicon, um, so if I can if I can get across the pond, I would yeah. hope to be able to borrow some toys and do it there. Well, I'm sure that I'm sure that can mm. happen. So speaking of anticipation. Mm. <laughs> I want to talk. Of, I want to look into the future. I want to look into the lard future, and maybe just for a minute, if you don't mind, a another mutual friend of ours mm. who's been mentioned on this episode already, mm. Mike Hobbs, the Welsh wizard himself, Welsh wizard. has been working on a top secret project that's been, well, not that top secret because the world knows about it already. Yeah. Yes. Let's just be thankful he didn't know about the Normandy invasion. Yeah, that's <laughs> a different story if he had. I am, of course, talking about your upcoming fant or his upcoming fantasy mm. game. Yeah. Um, yeah. He he is not. It's, it's kind of odd. The only thing that he hasn't released yeah. yet <laughs> is the name of the yeah. thing. It's S O T K. As far as we know. S O T K is right. Yeah. And who yeah, knows which, what which that, could stand? For. I wonder yeah. what that could stand for. Yeah. I sent him. I sent him a list of, of possible <laughs> options, and uh, the first one I sent was sawed off the kiwis. Well, I suggested subriquets of the kleptomaniacs, but apparently that's not the case. But, <laughs> but, but no, we well. well I, uh, but yeah, top top secret Hobbsy, as they call him in the valleys. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, some yeah. some ideas, some name ideas I sent him include sort out the kobolds. Yeah. Send out the knights. Yeah. Oh, that's a nice one. I like that one. Sold on the kinks. Ooh, if you're yeah. a Ray Davies fan, you really got me there. Yeah. yeah ship over. Ho -ho. Here, here's one for our for our East Asia fans. Ship yeah. over the katanas. Oh, good. Oh, yes. Yeah. And then we're gonna get in proper lard fashion. We're gonna get a little rude with suck on this, Kevin. <laughs> well, well, poor old Kevin. A... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, well, who knows is the answer, but um, it, it was a funny one actually. Somebody coming to me who's who is kind of um, uh, known for historical wargaming. Somebody to approach me and say, "How would you feel about publishing a set of rules if we wrote a fantasy set of rules?" Because I mean, I've. Um, I'm, it's not something that we're really known for, but I, mm -hmm. I actually um, have always had a deep and abiding love of Tolkien. Um, I, I 
fantasy, some fantasy worlds strike me as absurd in the extreme, but some strike me as plausible to the point where something like Tolkien, you can almost read it as history. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's so superbly thought out and superbly written. And I said to Hobbesy, yeah, listen, I am, I'd be really interested in that as long as I can get involved at creating the background world. Because many years ago, I, um, I was doing a fair bit of fantasy gaming. I had a really nice collection of figures which um, uh, disappeared. Uh, I, I, um, I had a change of job where I, where I became a publican. I had a pub. And um, I said to a friend of mine, "Will you look after all this stuff?" And he did, and then I never saw him again. <laughs> mm. So, but I'd created this wonderful fantasy world, and I'd never actually used it. And uh, I can't remember very much detail about it. But one of the things I really enjoyed was creating this this background. And I said said to Hobbesy, "Look, I'm more than happy for you to write the rules, but I've got to be involved in doing the background." Which uh, he uh, he's allowed me to do because I you know I, I like uh, I've, I've really enjoyed doing that um, and yeah he's he's taken the basic sharp practice model engine if you like and applied that and done lots of very very different things with it but still trying to keep things simple but what I like about it is that it it because um, well not necessarily because of my insistence on it having some degree of plausibility where you can actually look for a, a you know historical reference point um but it, he's actually created a set of rules which would really work beautifully for um the medieval period if you played it as a historical game which i really mm-hmm. like um but the other the other thing is that obviously you've got your your different fantasy um fantasy factions so you've got orcs you've got goblins you've got uh, elves you've got humans you've got well different sorts of humans really you've got more sort of norse type humans and then you've got more um holy roman empire type uh, humans uh and then you've got um dark orcs uh and you've got um all all sorts of all sorts of different people who live in the world as we know it at the moment um and then there is a world beyond that which we're looking to expand into once we go further but what we've mm-hmm. tried to do is is create this very sort of plausible world where um actually if, if the 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 human beings are presented as the good guys but if you actually read read into what has happened you'll see that you know like most human beings they are the architect of their own problems <laughs> that yeah. you know yes we'll move into this area here because we can't see anybody there at the moment but you know just marching in and setting up new colonies without understanding that this land actually belongs to somebody else who who just may not be there at the moment um and consequently may get a bit fed up when they turn up and discover that you've 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 moved in and therefore bash all your civilian farmers over the head and therefore get involved in conflict. So it's quite an interesting and subtle world, um, but with lots of variability to allow for some really, really pretty troop types and really, really interesting forces. I mean, one of the armies that I'm that I'm putting together at the moment um, is actually a mercenary force which protects a trader who goes up into the mountains to, to trade with the dwarves um, and as a result of which he often has to fight off goblins who uh, don't like him, dark orcs 
who uh, uh, don't like him trading with the dwarves, who they don't like, but also fight off some other human beings who think, well, I wouldn't mind nicking some of that stuff. Um, right. So it's quite an interesting little army, and having that allows me to have different little units. So I, I'm maybe going to have some elven rangers who are good for skirmishing and good bowmen, good trackers. I'll have a, a giant who's come down from the mountains of the north, um, and I'll have some Norse troops, but also some Lanschnecti type troops, which is oh, yeah. uh, a really quite funky little army. So there's a lot of opportunity to just um, uh, pick and mix the type of units that you're keen on, but um, but still have some you know fairly interesting core core forces. So you might you might be a Germanic type of knight. Um, who's got you know a force that's a mixture of his professional knightly retain knightly retainers and and unattached knights who've got no land of their own. But you'll also have your peasant archers, your peasant spearmen, billmen. But you might want to influence that by adding some sort of sort of French type. They're not actually French, but they're French type um, crossbowmen with their big pavises, or some, maybe some um, Hungarian type. M mounted uh, writers um, so lots of room to, to create some really interesting forces but what what Hobbes's done is is mixing the the historical aspect which you have normal combat but also with magic right. with beasts with um, um, all sorts of bits and pieces that make fantasy world a fantasy world rather than just a, a medieval mm -hmm. one so that that that'll and, be exciting, uh, and we're keen to get going on on external playtesting on that soon. I had a weekend mm. with them uh, just uh, last weekend where we played through a few games. We had uh, um, a couple of human groups fighting against uh, goblins and fighting against orcs. Um, but what, as I say, what what you could also have are some mercenaries who who come into contact with them. Sure. So be, it, it'll be really interesting. Really, it, it's it's a completely different uh, genre for us to do, but it's it's been really fun. And it and it's what I've enjoyed about it is that as I played the human contingent facing these uh, facing the orcs, one of the things I realised was I was beating them. Okay, I'm beating them. They attack me. I beat them. But they just keep on coming. They don't react like yeah. other human beings do. And you get to the point where you think, hey, I'm winning. And you think, hey, I'm winning. And you think, hey, I'm winning. But hey, I'm nearly, I've nearly lost enough men to really start worrying me. But I think I can still win. But can I, can I do it? So like with Chain of Command, where you're fighting your enemy's force morale... What you can't attempt to do is to wipe out all the enemy because they won't they won't die that easily. What you've got to right, do right. is try and hit them where it hurts and break their will to fight. Um, mm. So it's 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 an interesting it's an interesting uh, diversion for me. It's something that I haven't done before, and it's nice to be able to be on the sideline and just get involved when people go, "Hey, we, we're really excited about where we've got to now. Can can you drive over and uh, we'll show you what it's all about?" And uh, that's that's great nice. to see it uh, develop from the outside. Nice, mm. yeah, definitely looking forward to mm. that. The, probably no specific timeline, or well, it's um, it'll be ready when it's, it's ready. ready. When it's ready. I I've always said that designing games is an organic process rather than a mechanical process, 
and people, you know, mm. how long does it take to, to grow those tomatoes? You don't know. You go and look at the tomatoes every day and one day, you know when they're ready. But before that, you're never quite sure how long it will be. So in many ways, Hobbsy is like a tomato. <laughs> what, small, round and red? Something like that. <laughs> and we're never sure when it's going to be ready. But, uh, yeah, so... <laughs> but, yeah, so I'm just I'm leaving them to it, and when they feel that it's ready, then that's when uh, that's when we'll uh, we'll really examine it and make sure that make sure it is, and that's when we'll publish. But I would hope I think it's a it's a slow burner because rightly so it's uh, we haven't done fantasy before, so I would say it's probably going to be next mm -hmm. year, so 2019. Okay. But I'm really excited about that, and one of the guys involved in it, yeah. Jim Ibbotson, is actually just setting himself up as a military artist. Um, he's just decided to have a career change. Jim's a really talented painter and artist, and uh, I'm hoping that his first commission is going to be painting up some beautiful maps of the world that we're creating, which um, which is going to be great because it'll certainly look better than the pencil sketches my, with my scribble on it. But uh, you know, they're really interesting worlds, and it would be it would be great to see uh, interesting world, and it would be great to see them them done beautifully by a by a guy who's not just an artist but also a military artist so yeah nice and and uh there's been some talk off and on about a sci-fi version of chain of command is that uh in the offing or is that kind of just a side project that you get to when you it's, get to oh, that's something that's uh that's that's in the air it's in the ether it is it is um will-o'-the-wisp like that you can't actually it's not tangible you can't put your hand on it but it's there somewhere but there's an awful lot of them, to be honest with you. It's it, one of the things I always feel is if if you say to me, "Will you? I'm going to commission you. I'm going to give you. There we go. All this money, and you're going to go away and write a set of rules for World War Two naval warfare." Well, I could go away and do it, and I could make, I could mechanically produce a set of rules for you. But my heart and soul wouldn't be in it, so I would never do that. So I always feel that mm. if I'm going to work on a set of rules, I have to be 100% into that period. I have to be loving every minute of it and, and, and enjoying that process. And that, that has, there's nothing mechanical about that. that. That's all about inspiration. And right. so I wait for the inspiration to come on. And if a project runs out of inspiration, I put it on a shelf and hope that one day I'll come back to it. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, gentlemen, I... I think this is about time for us to go our separate ways, at least mm. for now. And I, I definitely appreciate you coming on. Thank you very Been much. Pleasure. Uh, Been a pleasure. I'm, I'm definitely pleasure. looking forward to, was it 8th or 9th of April, when I'll have uh, access to the PDF of What It's yep. Anchored. And yep. uh, hopefully not too long after that, I'll, I'll get the hard copy in my hot mm. little hands, and mm. we'll, we'll get to... I'm sure ordering lots and lots and lots of stuff that I don't really need, but oh man, I'm <laughs> that's what it's all about. And that is the world of the game. Yeah. So, uh, once again, thanks for Pleasure. coming on, and uh, look forward to chatting again sometime in the future. And folks out there listening, as always, if the wargaming you're having isn't any fun, you make it fun. That is all. The Veteran Wargamer is copyright J. Arnold 2018. Music courtesy of binsound.com. <laughs>